Let's pray together. In this week of prayer for Christian unity, help us to think, feel, and will ourselves into that unity so that we may truly be one. Amen. Amen. Unity, it's important in all spheres of life. Any football manager will tell you that. On the pitch, it's vital that every player keeps in mind the common purpose, which of course is to win. Any player that thinks they're more talented than the others, and because of that they can do their own thing on the pitch, will compromise the team. Pelly, one of the greatest footballers of all time, said the really obvious, the only way to win is as a team. No one plays alone. Football is not about one, two, or three even star players. Success depends on your whole team being a single unit. Or what about on the battlefield? Armies need clear signals to coordinate battles. And for many centuries before our own, drums were used not just to keep soldiers in step, but to send orders to the troops. During the American War of Independence, some of the drummers apparently would do their own thing just to show off how good they were. And General George Washington, I think we've heard of him, had to issue this order. Drums are used as signals to the army. And if every drummer is allowed to beat at his own pleasure, the intention is entirely destroyed, as it will not be possible to distinguish whether they are drumming for their own pleasure or for a signal to the troops. Indeed, most barriers to unity stem from a desire to do our own thing for our own pleasure, and how unity is needed today. I seem to remember back in the 1990s, a world falling apart needs a church coming together. Some of you might remember that saying. And sometimes, yes, it feels like it's the other way around. But friends, in our fragmented world, we do need to demonstrate unity and be those people coming together. Just think of the politics of the last year. No, no, don't. It's too terrifying. And of all those disputes and strikes right now, indeed, the very word union makes us feel a little unsettled, doesn't it, as our calendars are peppered with colored circles to remind us which strikes are on which days. Well, what kind of unity do we need then? Not a unity of uniformity where we're all the same. People are much too diverse with different backgrounds, ages, interests, preferences, and takes on things. People don't make good clones. But neither is it a unity of tolerance that we need. Well, the surface is all smiles, but underneath rage are resentments and contempt for each other. But nor is it the unity of Putin's Russia, unity based on fear where people do what they're told and think what they're told to think. All those unities are shallow and as such do not last. No, we need something much better and deeper than that. We need a unity that isn't made on earth, but made in heaven. And that's what we have as the body of Christ. We are all baptized into one body. We all share, as the liturgy says, in one bread. And so the oneness is already there, made in heaven. But on earth, it will take real work 
effort and tears and prayers to realize it and maintain it. As we read through Paul's letter to the Philippians, it becomes obvious that unity is of major importance to him. Look at this sentence from chapter 4. We will do when it... There we go. Sentence from chapter 4. I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, we know very little about these two women whom Paul singles out, and we know even less about what they're disagreeing about, which is to say nothing. It was important enough, though, for Paul to single them out for mention in a letter which would have been read to the whole church. And we can imagine the poor soul on the reading road to that week. He comes to this line, starts reading it, and then realizes with horror that it contains the names of two actual people in the congregation. Perhaps this reader blushed, tried desperately not to look at Euodia and Syntyche, hurried on to safer ground, rejoiced in the Lord, which comes after this bit. Uh, unity, though, is no add-on for Paul but it's vital if the church is to contend with any effectiveness in a fragmented world. So let's go on in our reading to Philippians chapter 2, which is the bit we had read for us earlier. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort in His love, if any fellowship in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. Now, Paul already has great joy in the Philippians. Remember back in chapter 1, he prays with joy for them. But in verse 1 here, he gives us a series of ifs. If you have any encouragement, if any comfort, if any compassion. Now, that might be a bit confusing. Well, do they have it or don't they? But the Greek can be translated so that if is read as since. And then it becomes clear that Paul is commending the Philippians for having all those things. Since you have encouragement from being united with Christ, since you have comfort from his love, etc. Paul is already joyful because of the life and love in the Philippian church. But there's something missing. And that is a level and a depth of unity which the dispute we've just seen between Euodia and Syntyche shows they haven't quite reached. So, since you have all these things, Paul says, fellowship, comfort, love, please make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. And so, Paul exhorts them to be like-minded. Now, that sounds like Paul wants them all to think alike, which for us is nothing short of terrifying. But Paul isn't talking about thinking in the intellectual sense. He's talking about the whole person, emotions, attitudes, and will. And one commentator puts it like this, what Paul is asking of us is a unity of spirit and sentiment, feeling in which powerful tensions are held together by an overmastering loyalty to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's about holding differences together, not about eliminating them. The main thing that gets in the way of the unity we're talking about isn't our differences, it's what we do with them and how we treat others who are different from us. But the good news is that amidst all our differences, there is something we can do to promote unity, and here it is. Do nothing, Paul says, out of selfish ambition 
or empty conceit, but rather in humility consider others better than yourselves, not looking to your own interests or your own interests only, but each of you looking to the interests of others. So the issue isn't so much diversity or difference, but self-centeredness. All that rivalry, bickering, pushing ourselves and our agendas, jockeying for position for control, what Paul calls here selfish ambition and empty or vain conceit, or strife and vain glory, if you look in the King James, which is a wonderful way of putting it, a spirit of rivalry and self-seeking is going to destroy unity. And the antidote, Paul says, is humility. Humility that, that Paul says values or considers others better than yourself and doesn't remain self-absorbed but looks out and considers the interests of others. This is profoundly countercultural today and it was so when Paul was writing. Rome did not get where it was considering the surrounding nations to be superior and asking them what their interests were. Rome got where it was by naked self-interest. Rome achieved its fabled Pax Romana by victory in battle. It did exhibit a kind of unity. Think of those marching ranks of soldiers, shields locked together, and think too of those occupied Roman provinces where people were given a measure of freedom, but ultimately they were expected to pay their taxes and kowtow to Rome. And the Roman emperor wasn't known for considering himself the servant of the people. Indeed, when you heard the phrase, Caesar is Lord, you cowed, you bowed, you got out of the way. But for Paul, humility is the way into unity. Unity not of uniformity, not based on mere tolerance, and not out of the fear of not conforming, but a unity of vision and purpose based in love. Brothers and sisters, it is our affection for one another that will secure and maintain our unity, not our agreement on every item of doctrine. And it's not an affection we can drum up. No, it comes by the Spirit from the very heart of Jesus himself. But Paul doesn't leave it there. Having exhorted his readers to unity, pointed them in the direction of humility, he gives us one of the most intense and immense texts in the entire Bible. Now, some think this was a hymn from the early days that Paul took and put into this letter to illustrate his points. And here is the first part. There we go. Paul pivots then from his plea for unity to Jesus' example of humility, sorry, plea for unity to Jesus' example of humility in verse 5 here by pointing out that we don't just listen to stories of Jesus and try to imitate him, but that we need to strike the same attitude. The imitation of Christ that Paul is appealing for here goes down to the very roots of our hearts, minds, and wills. Indeed, the journey depicted all the way down from Godhood and heaven to a vile and grisly end on a Roman cross goes down very deep indeed. And the way down here, that's the way of humility. But of course, we have taken on board so many false ideas of what humility is. I just need to clarify it briefly. Humility is most definitely not thinking less of ourselves. Some attribute this quote to C.S. Lewis, don't think less of yourselves, think of yourselves less. But what Lewis definitely did say underlines this. The truly humble man or woman will not be thinking of humility. They will not be thinking about themselves at all. 
Self-forgetfulness is what Lewis is talking about. Whether it's ever possible to never think about yourself, probably not, but we can certainly lose ourselves in something or someone bigger than ourselves. Not so that we become nothing, and that translation, he made himself nothing, you'll find in the New International Version, doesn't really convey the original, which as I've got it here, says he poured himself out, or he emptied himself. Not so he became less than God, but that as fully God, fully human, he gave of himself in love to all around him. And so valuing or considering ourselves better, considering, sorry, others better, right, is not about putting ourselves down, because if we're doing that, guess who's in the center doing that? We are. Self-centeredness is the real enemy of humility, and false humility, where we pretend to be less than we are, or play that game of, no, you take the best chair, no, you take it, in order to put people in our debt, is definitely not the real thing. False modesty is just that, it's false. Humility is also not being a doormat and never saying no. It's not about pretending you don't like something or you have a preference. It's much more about knowing yourself, your likes, dislikes, preferences, and yet being willing to put those aside for the sake of unity. Humility is also not running yourself into the ground, sacrificing everything to take care of everybody else whilst neglecting a proper care of yourself. No, that way lies exhaustion and resentment when people don't thank you for being ever so humble. At that point, real humility cries for help. So true humility begins, I think, by remembering what we are in our humanity. We come from dust. Indeed, the very word humility comes from the Latin word humus, meaning earth. And also, it begins by remembering our status as beloved members of God's family. With those two things firmly in our hearts and minds, we can take this journey into what Paul describes as the life of a suffering servant. Of course, the most astounding part of this isn't that Jesus became a servant and accepted human limitations and indignities. It's that it's Jesus who did it. It's Jesus, the divine Son of God. It's that God stoops so tenderly, as the Graham Kendrick song has it, and by doing so, lifts our humanity to the heights of his throne. And there is perhaps no more striking illustration of this than when at the Last Supper, Jesus takes up the basin and the towel and begins to wash his disciples' feet. He takes position of a slave, the one who would normally be attending to this menial chore, and he strips off his outer robe, something echoed by that phrase, he emptied himself, he divested himself took off anything that spoke of who he was as Lord, and proceeded to do the most unlordly thing imaginable, apart from dying on a cross, that is. When he'd finished, he said it was an example. That's right, we ought to wash each other's feet. If our Lord does this, and how much more should we? Not literally, as that would be pretty weird in today's society, but by being true servants to one another, as the song some of you may know goes. Brother, sister, let me serve you. Let me be as Christ to you. Pray that I may have the grace to let you be my servant too. So where do we go from here? Jesus, our model of humility, will teach us, as he says in Matthew's Gospel, take my yoke upon you. 
learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If we are willing to learn, of course, and take his yoke upon us, and be yoked together with our brothers and sisters, and be willing to learn from them. Jesus is our teacher and example in humility. And so we ask, we seek, we knock, we say, Lord, I am not humble. Please show me the way down, the way of humility. Friends, we need unity. We don't need to think the same about everything, but we do need to avoid disagreements turning sour and creating divisions. Or we'll end up like the Church of England. Oh, wait a minute. That's where we are. We need an outbreak of humility, of people realizing that the way down is the way up, the path of downward mobility, in contrast to that path of upward mobility, where people are the things you step on as you step up. No, here as you step down, you lift other people up. So let's meditate this week on the example of our Lord Jesus as we humble ourselves, find the Spirit working through us as one body in service to one Lord. And so let's pray together. Please stand up if you can or feel seated, or stay seated if you feel it's appropriate. It's fine. Let's just take a moment to measure our attitudes by those Paul has so powerfully put forth here. And of course, by that great example of our Lord Jesus, who being in very nature God, became human, humbled himself, poured himself out for us. Lord, where do I need to listen? Where do I need to allow others to be as they are? Why do I feel I need to make sure everyone sees it the way I see it? How can I make space for others and not shut them out? And do I need to come to Jesus with my fretfulness, tiredness? Just let him give me rest. Know that you are deeply loved. And as you know that and grasp it, step down into this way of humility. In security, knowing that God has you. You won't fall, stumble, and somehow slide right to the bottom of some horrible pit. You won't. The Lord will uphold you and exalt you if you humble yourself in due time. Lord will exalt you, lift you up, as you li- even as you lift others up. In Jesus' name, amen.